we come to a practice like this, we put ourselves in this kind of situation with the courage that it takes, the steadiness that it takes, the honesty, the willingness to really face our lives in a rather naked and direct way that it takes to be here, to do this kind of work, because of a longing for freedom. Sometimes I think we can lose touch with that original impulse. But that's why we're here. Because something in us longs for freedom. That means something in us actually recognizes the possibility, intuits, to whatever degree. It may feel just like a desperate hope for freedom. But to some extent, there's actually a kind of inner compass that orientates us, that orientated us to here, here to Spirit Rock, here to this practice, here to this moment, here to any insight we've ever had, here to our willingness to participate, to look, to feel into, to explore, to care about what's happening. the compass of our practice and to the extent that our practice soaks into hopefully every aspect of our lives, the compass of our lives is the longing for freedom. And that longing itself is really important. Sometimes we get a bit fixated on the destination, as we know in any area of our lives. And there's this old adage of the journey being more important than the destination, right? Because that's where we are. We get fixed on freedom and then we compare to where we are now, unfree, And the longing, rather than really getting acknowledged, gets subsumed in in the fixating on where it is we're trying to get to. But again, I say the longing itself is important. I remember as a teenager, the kind of usual sort of angst and confusion and uh, restlessness of adolescence. And somewhere in the midst of that, of all that, the kind of mess, I really recognized some longing for freedom. I didn't know what that meant, but I knew there had to be something with some depth and some meaning and some, something worth orientating all this extraordinary amount of life and, and uh, vitality that I felt as a teenager. And so traveling to India... And coming into contact with Dharma teachings was, uh, you know, felt very much like, like some kind of extraordinary blessing. 
I remember from the, like about 20 minutes in to the first Dharma talk I ever heard, the crying and the sense of relief. Oh, that somebody was talking about that freedom that I'd been longing for without knowing what it was. And then for a while I got into a whole mess of trying to be free, expecting I ought to be free, castigating myself for not being free. And our attention goes out to the ideal called freedom, and then I just kept measuring myself against that ideal. And oh, how I found myself lacking. You know, my ideal looks something like this. You know, this statue, golden, kind of completely impervious to all the, the vicissitudes of life. Hard act to follow. But I started to wake up to this something very vital, something very passionate, something very alive in the very orientation of longing to be free, wanting freedom. I started to notice, oh, I've been busy really noticing just how unfree I am for these last months that started to turn into years. And yet, as I've been noticing how unfree I am, as I've been castigating myself, berating myself for not being free, as I've been longing, wishing, hoping I could be freer, if I look back over these months and years of this clumsy attempt to be free, something's happening. Something's changing. Something's transforming. You might start to get interest in the longing, interested in the longing itself that movement of the heart. Longing for freedom is the, long, the longing to open our heart to life. And letting ourselves feel the longing, the love of freedom, is for our heart to start to crack open. Sometimes reading poetry may get some sense of the kind of the exquisiteness of the longing. The beauty of poetry isn't in the answer, isn't in what's being pointed to. Sometimes we don't know what's being pointed to. But there's something communicated of, of beauty, of subtlety, of immediacy, of a kind of fragile, precious beauty that's pointed to in the longing of the poetry. Listen to Leonard Cohen, the king of longing, to get a sense of that. And that in, in the movement of the longing, one's able to somehow come undone. And the poignancy and the beauty that can get revealed, that can get freed up, that can start to move in the heart as we allow ourselves to really land in this longing we have for something deep and beautiful, something authentic and free to animate our life, define our life, shepherd our life, guide our life, accommodate our life. <laughs> 
Freedom's a big word in our culture. I think I'm even in the, the home of the free, or the land of the brave, or something, or the other way around. I'm not sure which way around. Is it the home of the free? Land of the free? Ho- yeah, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I remember seeing a Tom Cruise movie a long time ago. I think it may have been Jerry Maguire, but I'm not sure. And in this, in this movie, he's driving in a car, and he's all, he's all disturbed about something. I can't remember what. But he's, he's kind of angry and restless and upset, and he doesn't know what he's doing, and he's, he's t- turning the radio stations in the car to try and kind of pacify his agitated state. And the song comes on the radio, which goes, I'm free to do what I want any old time, or something like that. And he kind of, he gets all kind of puffed up on it. He's banging the steering wheel and shouting out the window, I'm free. And it really strikes you, if you've seen that movie, how painful it is, because how patently, obviously unfree (laughs) he is. It is a British song. This is not... Okay. (laughs) You mean we're unfree too? <laughs> they didn't hear what he said. It's a British song, apparently. <laughs> so our, our culture kind of posits freedom as a freedom to, a freedom to do what I want, a freedom to do, a freedom to get, a freedom to have, a freedom to become. It seems to be enshrined It is enshrined in secular culture. Freedom to do, have, get, become. And yet this practice in many ways talks about the unraveling, the freeing from, not a freedom to, but rather a freedom from getting, having, doing, becoming. (coughs) It's rather kind of radical. Freedom from having to do what I want all the time. (laughs) freedom from being driven around pulled around by the whims and desires and and, uh, desperations freedom from quote Bob Marley freedom from mental slavery the mental slavery of every time I have uh, a desire or a reaction Every time I have some kind of uncomfortable movement, feeling, oh, just getting pulled around by it. What kind of freedom is that? The kind of freedom is, it's that uncomfortable steering wheel thumping, you know, denial type freedom. So, in looking at or in imagining or even exploring the possibility of something about a freedom from my own heart and mind and body's kind of pulls and pushes, we meet ourselves in this kind of practice and we look and see we have these kind of uh, postures or practices, very, very simple. Just sitting quietly, paying attention, 
and we notice what seems to stand out as we do that seems to be whatever's not free. Whatever's exercising a pull on us seems to show up in quite clear relief against this very simple background of basically not doing hardly anything. It's an opportunity to see what's not free, what's pulling on me. And the practice of freedom by through the means of really being willing to listen to, to explore, to allow, to let be, to let move in us, to let be clarified what's not free. And that's how, as we've been exploring and as you've been reporting during the week, that's how our hearts get clarified of what's not free the clarification of old hurts and confusions, old stories and reactions arising, being known and welcomed and allowed and freeing themselves up. Old compulsions and contractions getting self-liberated because even though we talk about this as a practice of letting go it's a rather clumsy translation of this word anupadana in Pali which literally means to not hold on to not cling to not grasp to not fixate the practice of freedom through meeting the stuff of our lives without fixating without obsessing, without clinging to solid and rigid ideas about how things could or should be. And it's not a dichotomy. We sometimes, because we have a tendency to think linearly, we think, oh, well, if I just kind of hang out here and clarify what's not free, let it all bubble up, sooner or later... It'll all be clarified and then free. So a bit freer, a bit freer, a bit freer. Oh, freest. But it's, you know, that's the tendency of our mind to think in terms of either one or the other, free or not free. That kind of dichotomy. I, I want to speak about that dichotomy some more in a, in a moment. And Eugene referred yesterday as well to the seeming dichotomy, self or not self, which is it to be? Is there a self? Like he was saying, someone asked the Buddha, for goodness sake, spit it out. Is there a self or isn't there? And the, the, the refusal to get caught in that dichotomy there's freeing could say. Rather than emphasizing free or not free, there's freeing. Each time something's clarified, there's a freeing up. There's liberating experience, which many of you have spoken about in, in the, when you've been reporting back from your dialogues, for example. Things getting freed up. 
it's, and the, what happens in what we could call these liberating experiences, there's two components. There's the, the liberating bit, the freeing up, and then there's the experience itself. And we tend to get a bit hooked into the wrong part, into the less important part. The less important part is the experience. The feeling of the experience, the quality of the experience. The more important part is something getting freed up. And when we have these kind of wonderful experiences of a sense of great opening, a sense of great intimacy with life, a sense of great freedom, a sense of great peace. And then we don't have that experience anymore. And then we get into a mess of trying to get back there. And sometimes people say, oh, I, I used to have these great experiences in meditation. And now it doesn't seem to be happening so much. And I, I wonder what's gone wrong. My practice has gone flat or something. But I think in some ways it's, it's like there's a kind of... You know, as, as things get clarified, as things get freed up, as things that have kind of locked us down for years, for decades, so long that we, can't rem- we don't know any other condition and keep us in a kind of narrow bandwidth. And as those things get freed up, sometimes our view, our sensitivity, our experience literally goes from this narrow bandwidth to opening right up. We say, wow. And then it comes back. And the, the kind of wow experience is the contrast between this narrow bandwidth and a sudden opening up. And yet as time goes by, as things free up, as we get more used to a kind of um, a way of being in life that isn't so rigidly defined, then our bandwidth increases. And we get more used to a kind of wider or freer way of seeing. So what a few years ago may have seemed like this much bandwidth, which would have been some kind of peak experience, compared to this narrow bandwidth that we were used to operating in, now seems kind of more normal. Like the way sometimes we have what we call peak experiences, we say, well, I felt so, so intimate with life, or so free, things were so beautiful, everything was so alive. But it seems like that exists in some rarefied condition where we feel about how I could never be functional in that state. How do you do, you know, people ask, how do you do the groceries or something? You know, you, as, if, as if this is the provenance, the province of, of some rarefied meditation state. And yet actually, as the, the boundaries of our bandwidth get more flexible, we find that we're able to be more and more intimate with life, more and more sensitive to what's happening in all kinds of different ways while actually being increasingly functional. Because our our functionality, that means our capacity to listen, to observe, to respond, to understand, to care, to meet what's happening isn't being clamped down, isn't being squeezed into this narrow bandwidth.
So we sometimes get caught up or hung up on, on the kind of wow experience, on the expansive experience. But what's most important there is the fact that something's been seen or understood or allowed or given space that has let things free up. And so what's really important, what's really integratable into our life is the willingness to see that truth, allow that truth, meet that truth. You know, whether we've seen something, we sometimes, for example, we feel a kind of tension, a clamping in our heart. And it's in sensing into that clamping, feeling oh, how I'm protecting myself against life in some way. And feeling into that and the, 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 the melting of it, it, we dare to allow the melting of that tension and something opens up. So we don't, it's not that we need to get back to that experience of, of things opening up. The message, what got, what's gotten freed up, is the, the possibility of feeling our heart, the possibility of daring to know that clamping and allow it to move, for example. There's three particular kinds of ways the Buddha looks among, among the, the myriad different angles from which one can look at freedom. Right? The two epithets the Buddha used the most often to talk about the fruits of this practice, bodhi and vimuti, awakening and freedom. Well, there's thousands and thousands of different teachings and all the subtlety in those different teachings and all the endless ways those teachings have been kind of re-enlivened and, re- and contributed to over a hundred generations since are all different facets different angles from which we can explore freedom there's three particular ways the Buddha looks at um, at the unraveling of clinging Grasping, fixating, that, that, uh, that correlate with three particular kinds of freedom, which I'd like to just look at a little bit. The first is, so the way he, t- he speaks about it is, there's three particular ways in which we fixate, which, which destroys our freedom or which limits our freedom, or which, which keeps us in a condition that seems to be unfree, that feels unfree, that feels limited, bound, strugglesome, if that's a word. And if it's not a word, it nevertheless feels like strugglesome. So the first is the, the, the clinging, the fixating around desire, around what I want. I looked at this a little bit of some days ago when I spoke about the demands and defenses and distractions. But how, that, how alive that fixation is when we believe that what I want, whatever it might be in any given moment, is really going to do it for me. We don't believe it philosophically. 
but something in us really has the sense that that might be true. And, you know, the, the, the ways in which, in meditation, yes, in being here in every other aspect of our life, in any moment of our lives, we can actually pay attention to the ways we're fixating around what I want. We might ask, well, what, would, what would freedom from desire look like? I come up with all kinds of strange ideas, usually, around some kind of desireless state where there's nothing going on, no wanting being produced. In which case, you know, that's it. We're just going to be right here in this spot forever. So what, what's freedom in terms of the, the fixating around wanting? One of my teachers uh, once did a nine-month solitary retreat in a cave in Thailand. And when he moved into the cave, a monk who'd been there before him, who'd actually died in that cave, had left a little cartoon written on the wall. So when my teacher moved into the cave, there was this cartoon of a kind of, of a monkey swinging gaily, like in a carefree, playful manner, swinging through the trees. And underneath, the caption said, Oh, what joy to know there is no happiness in this world. Sometimes people gasp when they hear that. <laughs> I've gotten into some <laughs> complicated conversations with people quoting that. Oh, what joy. We have to really think what's meant here. Oh, what joy to know there is no happiness in this world. Sounds kind of life-defeating in some way. Sounds miserable in some way. But look, he's a monkey swinging playfully through the trees saying, Oh, what joy. Oh, what freedom. Oh, what relief. Oh, what ease of being. Oh, what fluidity to navigate through all the trees swinging from here to there to know there is no happiness in life. To know that all these wants, all the things I invest in, aren't by themselves, aren't the source of happiness. When we let go of believing that that thing, that person, that situation is going to do it for me, when we really stop believing in that way, the freedom to be here without needing to go anywhere to try and get something called happiness. Oh, what joy. Oh, what relief. Our eyes are kind of open to life when we're not blinded by the idea that our happiness is somewhere else to be gotten, to be had, to be created, to be made, to be obtained to be attained. Anywhere that we locate happiness to be gotten, had, attained, obtained, we've got to go there to get it. And inevitably, when we do get there, it seems to be somewhere else. That's a terrible drag. Oh, what joy to know. Nothing particular, no person, no place, no situation is going to kind of magically liberate my life. 
No thing is going to do it for me. Oh, what rest and relief to know that. Similarly, of course, no person, no place, no situation, no thing is the source of unhappiness. No person, no place, no situation is to blame. This is freedom from the delusion of about the sources of happiness and unhappiness. And the Buddha talks about fixating on views and opinions. Basically, the need to be right. You know, how much trouble we get in by needing to be right. And how convinced we are that we are right. And how we don't seem to notice the strangeness of the situation. When I'm convinced I'm right, and you have the opposite view of me, and you're convinced you're right, and there we are. I'm right, no, I'm right. And we don't seem to notice there's something being communicated about the nature of clinging to views and opinions there. That two people can both have opposite views and both know they're right. Knowing we're right doesn't leave any room for compassion. In fact, we could say compassion is born when we, don't, when we can look at someone else without needing to be right. When there's real room for ambiguity. What would that look like? Freedom from here against there, this against that, me against you, right against wrong. Freedom from being right allows us to actually really see another person, another view, another group. Allows us to really include whoever they are in the kind of dichotomy of them and us. We might also experience it the other way around. Somehow the need to be wrong. I always feel, oh, they're right. I'm wrong. Must be something wrong. Some sense of conflict, I must be wrong. Freedom from having to be right allows compassion. Freedom from, ha- from, from being wrong allows confidence. The confidence to be here, to take our place, to meet what's here. Plenty of opportunities in our lives to explore where we cling to views and opinions, to manufactured ideas, to arbitrary positions or conditioned positions. 
all that I am rightness, what does, I, what does feeling right about something really tell us? It tells us that there's a way our view has been conditioned. And that is so much more useful to explore than exploring how right we are. And then the third kind of freedom the Buddha talks about is freedom from being and non-being. I'm going to talk about what I mean in case that sounds just like gobbledygook. It talks about clinging to being and non-being. In other words, our tendency to, to conceive, to think, to relate to things either as they are or they aren't. They exist or they don't exist. Try finding a different category. We can't. Conceptual mind can't find a different category. It is or it isn't. Thich Nhat Hanh has this lovely word. He he says that things inter-are. Things inter-are. It just goes some way to kind of pointing at another way uh, of meeting life. Another way of experiencing life without this kind of, without free of the dichotomy of is or isn't. It reminds me a little of you know, Ham- Hamlet's uh, soliloquy. Well, he's confronting this existential dilemma to live with all the, the pressure and the pain of egoic life or to end life. To be or not to be? He says, that's the question. It's interesting, you know these automatic translator programs? So apparently, somebody told me this is kind of... Uh, so the Hamlet was translated into Japanese, properly translated, and then it was translated by somebody from the Japanese back into English without any recourse to the original English. Okay? And how it came out as was, it is or it isn't, isn't it? <laughs> So this is the teaching of not clinging to being or non-being. It is or it isn't. Isn't it? You know, that, that possibility for some doubt, isn't it? So I try, I'm trying to elucidate what I mean. But if we, we take anything, look, bell here. We say, it is, Bell. But we've missed a whole bunch of that. We've missed all the conditions that give rise to the bell. We've also missed the space around the bell. There's no bell separate from the space around it. So to say, to have the idea, to have the concept, to have the way of experiencing life that gets locked into something is, bell, which is our usual way of thinking, we miss the kind of the mystery. We miss the inclusiveness. We miss the, the interbeing, to use Thich Nhat Hanh's word, of the relationship between bell and space and the conditions that make up the bell, etc. And then we might get into some kind of a dharmic view or some sort of philosophical view, and then we go to the other side, it isn't. 
This is the, the line we were exploring with self and not self yesterday. Is there or isn't there? Is there a bell or isn't there? Commonly, bell. And then when we get into some deconstructed view, we say, oh, there's no bell. There's just the components of the bell and there's a space around and it all is together. So this, this might seem technical, but this is the way we're constructing reality moment by moment. If you land in the place of it, there is a bell, you lose the rest of the universe because you got fixated on bell. But this is important. If you say there isn't, you lose the bell. How can we be in life without losing the rest of the universe by fixating on something, but without going to the other extreme of saying, oh, there isn't, and losing what's precious about what's here? How do we experience life freely, immediately, without getting stuck in it is or it isn't? How do you experience bell without landing in just the bell when you, where you lose the universe or no bell where you lose the bell? What's the freedom from the concept of bell or the concept of no bell? this or that, for is or isn't. In a freedom of perception that's alive, intangible, ungraspable, unmistakably here, freely unfolding. We could add another category to the three categories of the Buddha, which is a special category for us, which is another dichotomy, the clinging to meditation retreats. (laughs) As the definition of what Dharma practice is. You know, we say, oh, we, we refer back to these damn meditation retreats all the time as if that's what meditation ought to look like or feel like, as if that's what mindfulness ought to look like or feel like. You know, we have refined conditions here. So mindfulness is refined. We're being mindful of refinement, better way of saying it. We're being mindful of of a, a, a particularly quiet mind because we've been settling for some days. We're being mindful of a particularly um, kind of transparent sense of body because we've been really attuning to body for these days. So we mix that up and we we end up thinking mindfulness ought to look like or feel like refinement because that's what's happening in retreat. But no, this is mindfulness of refinement. 
and then in a few days, mindfulness of grossness. <laughs> Lack of refinement. Mindfulness of stimulated body. Mindfulness of busy mind, maybe. There's a, there's a, there's a great freedom, and therefore, where that's not, there's a great clinging to the ideas of what happens in retreat as somehow defining our practice. Our mindfulness is to really be in touch with this moment, with this one thing, in this one moment. But in a retreat, that this one thing, this one moment, you know, might be a very, uh, very simple object, just breathing, just footsteps. But in a busy life, that mindfulness of just one thing might be a very broad and inclusive thing. Mindfulness of just this walking along while talking on the mobile and making sure my child doesn't go out into the road and thinking of the shopping I've got to get. That's just one thing. But it's a very broad, inclusive just one thing. Where the mindfulness itself, the fact of being here, That's what's most significant, is the fact of being here. Much more important than the object. That's what what this longing for freedom is about. We didn't come with a longing to be able to breathe consciously. We didn't come with a longing to be able to take five footsteps one after the other without, you know. (laughs) We came with a longing to be here freely. That's what we're training (coughs) here in retreat. And the mindfulness of being here is not dependent on silence, not dependent on speed, not dependent on refinement. So the, the support of this kind of refinement is completely undeniable. That's why you keep coming back. That's why we keep showing up in this kind of environment. But don't think that the refinement itself is where it's at. The fact of being here is where it's at. The opportunity to be here fully and freely with what is. Here or there. In this condition or in that condition. Uh, I could say there's nothing as freeing as love. Loving what's here. Talk about being with, being aware of what's here. But we could equally, it's exactly the same movement, talk about loving what's here. I've been speaking about connection and curiosity and care as the qualities of awareness. But aren't they equally the qualities of love? Love wants to connect. Love wants to know more. Deeply curious. Love cares for what's happening. Love, loving what is, frees up our experience. We don't need to like it. 
but we're asked to love it, to allow it to move. Love dissolves the boundaries that seem to be there between me and whatever else it is. That experience of love, loving somebody, loving something, loving some activity, in the love is the, the, the softening or the dissolution of the boundary. Love is that which brings life closer. Love is that which opens us to what is. Love frees our relationship to life. So there's a kind of beautiful paradox where we can either put, we, we talk about these kind of twin aspects of wisdom and love, of awareness or of compassion. They seem to be, um, yeah, we've spoken about as twin aspects. And if we follow the one, we follow this kind of the wisdom aspect, the letting go, the deconstructing, the, 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 the everything being fluid, we start to point, as Eugene was yesterday, that of, to the unfindability of things. Unfindability of self. Unfindability of Bell. Unfindability of anything in its extraordinary, precious, fragile fluidity. If we follow the direction of love, we just seem to include more and more in those boundaries dissolving to love the breath, to love body, to love what's heard. The experience of love brings life in. You've probably heard this most exquisite encapsulation of this by the famous Indian teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj. I heard this first time 20 years ago. And I've had so much cause to contemplate it again and again and again since. And I'm forever, still now, finding different subtleties of of meaning and beauty. He says, wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. Between these two, my life flows flows fully and freely. That's my adding on the last bit. If you're anxious for the quote, I don't want to bastardize it. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. But don't land there. Don't let that become a position. I am nothing. No, there's a kind of... uh, uh, What's the word? I can't remember. Something no good about that becoming a position. I remember being in an ashram once in India where there was an Advaita ashram where there was lots of, oh, there's nothing here, I'm nothing. I asked someone, can you pass the salt? So I said, oh, thank you. They said, hey, there's no one to thank. (laughs) So I went like this, and they they cringed. I said, hey, there's no one to slap. Don't, la- don't get stuck there. I am nothing. <laughs> Wisdom 
points in that direction to the unfindability, to the mystery of nothing, no thingness. Meanwhile, love tells me I'm everything. Love brings everything in. As the boundaries dissolve, the sense of identification, who I take myself to be, doesn't need to stop every, anywhere. Look, here, in this awareness, you, you're all arising. You're all included right in here. Right? Common sense says you're over there somewhere, but where are you? You're in my awareness. You're right in here. There's no me experienceable without you right now. Love includes all that I see, hear, taste, touch, conceive of, remember, imagine. But don't get stuck there. Otherwise, we'll just have to form a commune. Wisdom seems to move us in one direction, called no-thingness, unfindability. Love seems to move us in another direction, called all-included, everything right here. Seem to be opposite directions, but the resolution of this paradox is in our living. My life flows between these two. We show up here with the promise, with the possibility, with the clarifying of our heart that allows us to show up fully and freely. A free heart can't help but to love and respond. A free mind can't help but to recognize what truly is. A free body is an organ of life experiencing itself. Is a sensitive body. Is an enlightened body. Is the body of the Buddha. The body of the Dharma. The body of life. Just a final reflection, because I'd like some time for you you all to explore. In the end, despite our kind of uh, wild imaginings and convoluted ideas, despite all our, our endless searching for something called freedom that seems uh, magical or mystical, freedom expresses itself rather simply as this. This heart, this mind this moment. Freedom expresses itself perhaps most authentically as the absence of anything in the way. The absence of contraction, confusion, fear, doubt, self-consciousness. 
the freedom just to meet life, to respond to life. freedom to be. Like this. Like this. So friends, where are you at? What's been freeing up in you this week? More. Conversely, what have you been noticing that maybe you're recognizing as not free, which is really revealing itself? And just make some time as an inquiry exercise to really explore where you find yourself. And as I spoke uh, just a little earlier about the no dichotomy, no, uh, between free and what's not free, no preferencing. As we start, in any authentic moment, as we really start to explore our experience, we, we have to start, in a way, from a place that says, I don't know. What's here? Let me be willing to not know so that I can actually see, actually recognize what's here. To inquire really requires uh, no preferencing, no agenda, no sense of what should be happening or could be happening, no, no need for any kind of presentation of what's happening, no need for any kind of... Uh, performance of what's happening. So just to really see as you have this, the privilege of these minutes where others are really there to listen. In other words, others are really according you the time and space to see what's here. So just to reflect on what, what, where you're at and what you've been noticing. It may be that you've been noticing things freeing up in a certain way. It may be that at the moment you're really shining kind of the light of awareness and care on what's showing up as seeming to be frozen or unfree. And in the, in the tolerating that, in the allowing that, in the making space for that, giving it the context to start to move, to start to show more of itself, to start to self-liberate or free up. And so that the inquiry is as alive as possible, really just to see if as you explore, see what's moving now in the exploring and in the expressing. We might, we might find that we're saying, oh, well, you know, this week I've really been noticing a kind of tendency when I feel uneasy to just kind of 
it's a kind of sh- it's like I shrink. It's like there's a kind of cage comes over my heart, and I go small, and and, and it's really it's, and I've noticed it in all kinds of different situations. And actually, now I'm sp- as I speak about it, I can kind of feel it happening. But it's interesting because normally I, I, you know, I wouldn't be able to say this in front of people. And now that I say it, and now that I actually see you while feeling this shrinking, it's like it doesn't have the same kind of power over me. Oh, wait, now I've said that, I notice there's a moment of doubt when I think, oh, hold on, you know, whatever it might be. So that whatever you've, whatever's been, you've been noticing is really, really informed by what's happening now. We could call it real-time inquiry, which is really the thread that runs through inquiry practice. Whatever we know, or think we know, informed by whatever we're able to know in the witnessing, in the exploring, in the experiencing, in the expressing of it to our partners. So we're going to do this as a monologue in threes, as we've done previously, and each person will have 15 minutes to speak. So you really have time. You have time to, ex- to go slowly so that you really stay in touch with your experience as you speak. You have time, if you just get to the end of a particular thread of thought, to just stop and listen to yourself and wait for the next thread. So I'd really encourage you to take the time to go slow, to stay as sensitive and present with with yourself as you can. And, you know, really to use your body for that. And whatever cues and clues you might get from what's happening in your body, from what's happening energetically as you explore. So you may as you begin, already be very plugged into what's there for you right this moment, or you may begin with uh, more a sense of of the threads you've been following through the week. But to just really uh, be as immediate-centered as you can as you explore with each other. So is that clear, or are there any questions about that? Clear. Okay. So the exercise will take 45 minutes, and uh, we can allow a couple of minutes for please remembering to just be quiet using the bathrooms. And so we'll be back at about 25 to. Yeah, in, in groups of... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.